just like we have in the marketplace pre-COVID, you've got businesses that want what they want and they'll pay for it because they see value and that would include new construction. And then you have others that aren't in that position or don't see the value quite as much and therefore will go to second generation building. I don't think that will change. Today on Further Faster, we navigate the current real estate landscape through the lens of a tenant. To help us do so, we welcome Savills Vice Chairman, Robert Savin. Savills is a global brokerage advisory firm that exclusively represents tenants and Robert heads their Chicago office. From South Africa to Chicago, Robert takes us along the inspiring journey of his upbringing and how he became one of the most influential brokers in the market. Robert, what's happening today? Matt, Adam, great to be here. It's a beautiful day. I'm in the office and uh, I feel like I'm consuming what we're out there selling, which is office space. So feeling productive and as creative as I can be, given that we only have a few people in today. Well, you just exposed us, by the way, because I don't think anyone has realized that Adam Pines is really the brains behind this podcast. Um, and he does all the uh, technical work, um, making all of us sound a little bit better than we probably do. But we thought no better than, you know, to bring you on this podcast to, to tell us, you know, what you're hearing. And, um, you know, we, we, we're not here to ask you to give up your trade secrets. But the reality is, you know, as I look at, you know, tenants in the market lists and activity, you know, you and your team, you know, showed up on that list maybe more than anyone else. And so the, it, it makes sense to talk to you because um, you did have a lot of activity before this all started. And my guess is you've had a lot of subsequent conversations uh, with your clients as they nav navigate, you know, the, the next six to 12 months. And, and we really want to dive into that. Um, but, but before we do that, um, give us a little, you know, background on, on, you know, how you grew up and, and, you know, how you got to where you are today as, um, you know, one of the top real estate brokers in the country. Well, I don't know if it's interesting to that many, but it, it feels like I took many forks in the road and, um, you know, if it gets to be a little bit long in the tooth, just stop me. But, uh, so you're right. I was born in Cape town. And uh, I grew up uh, in a, a beachside area called Clifton. And if you were to imagine an image of Clifton, uh, you would think of possibly a coastal Californian town or maybe an Australian town, maybe with mountains, sort of the mountains meeting the sea. And the lifestyle there was very, uh, was, a, was a very rich, rich in friendships, rich in experiences, rich in culture. Um, and interesting because I grew up during, uh, you know, a very well-known period of time, which was apartheid, right? Which is a, the period of time before Mandela was released from his jail cell in Robben Island and became president of the country. And so I actually only knew uh, a South Africa that was a version that, frankly, probably wasn't at its best, even though I had such a good childhood upbringing. And so now that I look back, I see these two different versions. And in a way, I'm disappointed I didn't get to spend more time in the newer chapter and have experiences um, that are probably more what they should have been and more normalized. So I had a, a terrific experience when I did live there, um, many friends and, and many activities uh, that I was able to enjoy being close to the beach and by the mountains. And, and as you mentioned before, I love playing tennis and I would go to school, I would take my skateboard with my rackets and I'd head to the tennis courts and I would play for hours and, and my friends and I would spend a lot of time together and, and travel for tournaments. And I played a lot of other sports as well. Learned to surf a little bit there and uh, 
sports like cricket and rugby, which we don't really spend much time talking about here in the States, were mandatory sports at school. So uh, I had to learn how to play those sports as well. And just a very sort of different uh, background than, than most of us here would experience. And uh, what happened one day was my father came home and said, what do you think about moving to Switzerland? I was 15. And it sounded like, wow, big vacation to a country in Europe. That sounds great. Why wouldn't we do that? I didn't think of the big picture at the time of leaving what I knew, leaving the climate and environment, leaving my friends. And my father, by way of his background, he was born and raised in the Belgian Congo. His first language is French, although he's of Italian heritage. My mother is South African, uh, English speaking. And so, you know, move like that for him, relatively easy because of the language switch, which is, you know, French speaking Switzerland, which is where we moved. So we ultimately did move um, that year um, because of a, an opportunity my father received in, uh, in his business. And we moved over to Switzerland to a tiny rural town, which was about 40 minutes from the French border, population of 6,000 in my town. And so I've come from this cosmopolitan Cape Town to a small apartment building where out of my window, and this is not an exaggeration, you see cows and train tracks. And every morning at five, the first trains are coming, the cows are waking up and the bells are going. And it's freezing because we moved in the winter. And I'm thinking to myself, what on earth did I just agree to? This, this is absolutely not what I signed up for. And I ended up going to a school, which was about an hour away, took a train every day, it was an international school. And I really loathed the decision. I was mad. I missed my sister, who's seven years older. She stayed back in Cape Town to finish University of Cape Town. And she had a, a career lined up afterwards and, and did not join us. And so that was very hard. And uh, it was a very challenging first year. And so what happened was I channeled all of my energy that first year into tennis. And I joined the local tennis club and I met people and these people who I met were really nice, but they didn't speak much English. So it forced me to learn French. I was forced to pick up the language and really find a way to engage locally and, and get involved with people. And the, the time at the tennis court is what helped me because I became you know, more engaged with everyone. And so I developed friends. Uh, I was an accepted entity. It allowed me to have a sort of a passport that was not just my traveling passport, but my tennis racket sort of became my passport. And I got really involved and, and met a great coach. And throughout my time there, as each sort of month went by, I developed strength in being more fearless because this change, which is pretty dramatic for me, uh, ended up being a way that I found strength and grit and, you know, realizing that I had things perhaps too easily when I lived in Cape Town. And so what I was able to do with that was develop this fearlessness around getting on trains on the weekend on my own. And I would travel to tennis tournaments in different parts of Europe because I wanted to see Europe. I wanted to travel. And that gave me an excuse to do that. My parents were great about letting me do it. It was safe at the time. Um, I would stay at sleep on the floors of tournament directors who allowed me to come in their homes. And I would play in Germany and Spain and, and France and Austria and you know a number of other countries. And uh, I met people there and developed friendships. And it was an, an amazing way to, to figure out who you were 
and I wasn't prepared for it initially, but I think what it did is it accelerated my growth and accelerated my ability to figure out if I had any sort of mental wherewithal. And so tennis really did that for me, ultimately. Uh, made some friends at my school, obviously, but that school was an hour away. So more of my friendships were developed locally through my, my tennis activities. And so from there, um, when I was 17, our, my guidance counselor in my high school, I had a high school where the total number of people was 81. And my graduating class was 13 people. And she asked me, you know, what is the plan? And uh, the choices at the time were, I went to an international high school, as I mentioned, you could, you could take the track of going to a, a, you know, a British university system, an American university system, or staying in Europe. And I had studied the British system, which was the system I was most accustomed to growing up in Cape Town, which as you know, South Africa was a, a, was a British colony back in the day. And so originally the thought was to go study in the UK, but I'd met someone who had played tennis at the University of Wisconsin. And she had said, you should really think about playing tennis in the US. It's a, it's a wonderful way to harness excellent academic experiences as well as maintaining your athletic interests. And so unless you're planning on going pro, which I wasn't planning on doing, that would be a great outlet. And, and at this point I'd become an adventurer. So to me, that was super exciting. And I mentioned this to my guidance counselor and she said, well, in that case, and she was this um, elderly British woman, Robert, you need to take the SAT test. <laughs> so I said, okay, um, when, how do I study and when do I take it? And w w what's this all about? So, well, the bad news is that it's tomorrow and there's only one of these tests in a given year in Switzerland. But the good news is you don't have to study for it and it's an aptitude test in essence. And therefore you should be good. So uh, I said, unlike okay, today where I, you know kids have all these pre-test, practice test classes. That we had I had did. zero prep, had no idea what I was getting into. So I took a train the next morning, three hours away, to this testing center where there were eight kids, and it was the first time I took a, a multiple choice test. We never took multiple choice tests in in my school, and I was looking at the the, the English this section. This might, might be a silly question, but was was the test in yeah. English? Test was in English. It's a US SAT test. So I'm looking at the English section. And as you guys probably remember, it's full of words that you wouldn't really use in sort of day-to-day -day vernacular. But I was able to, to look at them and understand that through some of these French roots, you know, a lot of the meaning of the words came out, or at least it was very easy to distinguish which, which were not the answers. And so I ended up doing surprisingly well, given that I had absolutely no idea what I was getting into. And we were well prepared for math at the school I went to. So it turned out, fortunately, it turned out well. And it came, you know, she got the results and she said, okay, now we can look at colleges. She goes, I have absolutely no idea what your tennis level is like. So I'm going to let you deal with that. But here are the different schools that you can consider academically. And so the original place I was planning on going to was, was University of Pennsylvania. And what happened was about two weeks before the deadline was due at any other school, the coach called me and said, uh, I'm actually leaving and I'm calling you because I would feel badly if you made a decision to come here and you were banking on a really enriched experience, both athletically and academically. And the person that's you know, coming to fill my position, I'm not sure how you would feel about this person, you know, read between the lines. 
So I'm 17 years old. I don't know what to do. I'm sitting in a small room in Switzerland. I, I really don't have good visibility. But you're sitting on a good SAT score if you're talking to Penn. I suspect it was good enough. And so <laughs> what he said was, of the schools that, that you've been talking to, I would recommend that you go to Northwestern. That, that would be my, I know, I know the coach, I know the school, and I know the environment. I think you'll, you'd, you'd really get a lot out of it. And yeah, and that, not to interrupt, but do these coaches, you know, nowadays, okay. you know, I remember even when I was, you know, trying to play soccer in, in college, mm -hmm. you know, we would put together these yeah. videos, these snippets of yeah. our performance. I mean, is that, is that stuff that so, you folks were doing overseas yeah. as well? I, I, we had to put together a video and like a ranking history. And if I showed you the video, I did, I mean, pink shorts, white shirt, you know, the, the 90s, you couldn't, you couldn't believe the stuff you were saying. I, I, I refuse to show anyone that video. So you'd have to get me in a really weak position. I think, I think Pines is going to <laughs> have to get a spill image of you in those pink shorts for the It's uh, pretty, for the, for the, the old for the Agassi glass. shorts. It was fantastic. Love it. So, so that's, so the, it is, that's exactly how it went. It was uh, old school VHS tapes and you would send them over in the mail and they would write you a letter and or call you. So that, that's mean, so how that, I ended I mean, up at Northwestern. I mean, that's overcoming a lot of adversity. I mean, to be a, to be a 15 year old kid and go into a place that you don't, you know, know anyone and certainly, you know, to not have a large population to, you know, you know, really, you know, dive into, um, I feel like that that's a lot for a 15 year old to take on. Um, yeah. and yeah. obviously you, you probably developed a lot of the skill sets that have made you successful today because of, you know, that, you know, adventurous, you know, spirit opportunity that you had to, to take on at that age. Yeah, I definitely didn't expect, I would never have envisioned that I would actually be here having this conversation with you today. If you think about where I was when I was 14, 15, this is not where I thought I would end up. And um, I certainly didn't have any idea what career path I would take. So it's, I think the point of it is interesting, which is, you never know where you're going to go. I think the more open you are to change and the more you allow yourself to get uncomfortable and then use your human nature and, and internal strengths that every one of us has to, to find a way out and do things that make you feel like you've accomplished something. It's, it's, a, it's a great mindset to be able to find. And I did not have that until I moved. So I'm grateful that that's what it forced me to find. And, and that, you know, that helps us pivot right into, you know, trying to understand one, you know, you go to Northwestern, how, how you found real estate, and then, you know, maybe, you know, quickly just talk to us and, and, and how you, you know, made that decision to, to get into real estate. And then maybe we can, we can pivot back into talking a little bit about um, what you're doing today and what we're seeing. Sure. So uh, at Northwestern, I was fortunate to make a number of really great friends. And in fact, uh, when I left Northwestern, I started my career at Leah Burnett Company, which is an advertising agency. And I was an account executive uh, focused on consumer packaged goods. So Procter and & Gamble and, and you know brands uh, that they owned, I was traveling to Cincinnati every week and I was sort of helping bridge the gap between what they were trying to get out is their messages for their different product lines in terms of advertising and then people internally who were creating the messaging and, and putting out, you know, various commercials. And so you were in a way you're sort of brokering internal and external objectives 
and managing. And they, they, it was interesting because they put a lot of responsibility on young people coming out and you just ran with it. It was expected. And so it was a very, very interesting training ground. Um, but I felt like it wasn't something that I wanted to do long-term. There was a point when I was there and I was looking at, you know, those sitting in the corner offices. And, and usually you would say to yourself, I want that. That's for me. I, I'm inspired and I want to go get it. And I didn't feel it. And so I, my mind sort of opened up. Um, and speaking of, you know, friends that I made at Northwestern, one of my good friends in the industry, Kyle Kamen, who's at CB, he was the one that introduced me to this business. And so go back to 2001, I took a leap and I got into this business and the mindset was, you know, um, I may not know Chicago in terms of not having grown up here and, and not having people that I grew up with, um, but real estate, you know, obviously is a hard asset and everyone at some point in time is going to use or be in or, or have some affiliation to real estate, whether it's as an owner, as a broker, as an occupier, you know, it's not paper and you don't just trade it and doesn't ever sort of go to a zero value. So um, it, it felt like a really interesting um, concept to get into this business and one where, you know, I think as sort of that mindset of, of being a former athlete, you think about how much can you do in a given day? How high can you jump? How far can you go? And it felt like that would be a really fun challenge and it was intriguing and I decided to go for it. And 19 years later, you are head of the sales office in Chicago. Um, one of the most active brokers in Chicago, probably in the country. I mean, I think that's, um, I think you landed right where you, uh, where you belong. Well, don't give me too much credit. I don't know if I'm, I'm uh, that active, but I, I appreciate the comment. <laughs> well, well, none of us are very active right now, and so that's that's what that's why you know that's also why you're here. And 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 you know, it, because it is so slow, it it really is hard to 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 find data. It's hard to determine what is market. There is no market. You know, yeah. we can go right. on and on, but yeah. So right. you know, you were active as recently as four months ago, um, and mm -hmm. you're you're probably substantially less active right now. Um, and, but my guess is you've had a lot of conversations um, with your tenants that were active. And, you know, we, again, we, we don't need trade secrets here. Um, we, we just want to get, you know, kind of a, the lay of the land. I mean, what, what are the conversations that you're having with, with some of, you know, frankly, some of the larger users? Um, I'm, I'm really interested to, to hear what, what they are thinking um, and what we've been hearing from other people we've been talking to. And I think even, even with, with you, you know, when we talked a, a week right. ago was, you know, that there's, right. there were some knee jerk reactions initially, you know, everyone hit the panic button. Yeah. Um, but mm -hmm. it seems there, there's, there seems to be a consistent message across, you know, all, all the, the facets of commercial real estate that there's this, this, this patience. Um, so, so let us know, yeah, talk a little bit about what, what you're seeing right now, what, what your conversations sure. are like. And, um, sure. um, yeah, so I think you can, in a way you can really categorize the conversations in two buckets. I would say the first is, is a tactical bucket and the second is a strategic bucket. So what I mean by that is tactically right now, and, and you mentioned larger users, I think a lot of larger users are trying to figure out, you know, two things you've got portfolios of office space that, that they have to consider. So some of it may be in Chicago and, and they may have many other locations and they've got to find a way 
to make sense of that overhead. It's a big spend and, and obviously the usage is down. And so, you know, where you used to be able to focus on, you know, density and figuring out how many people you can get in a limited number of square feet, that lever is sort of gone. That doesn't, that equation doesn't work anymore. So they're having to get a little more creative around what to do to make sense of, uh, of a big spend. And what will, you know, what will be those primary points going forward in terms of how they think about um, space and cost and usage. And so tactically right now, I think many companies are looking at how COVID may have impacted their budget as it relates to real estate spend. Uh, how does it impact the way in which they'll think about their future portfolio? What does that even look like? And so I think there's a lot of data collection that's occurring right now, trying to figure out from internal sources how um, their people are going to be using space based upon work from home experiments is probably what I would call it because it was forced on us. And so technologically, I think it's been successful. I think from a human perspective, I think it's, it's been really challenging. I don't think it's easy for companies to find ways to propel their business forward when you have everyone working from home and you can't be as creative and collaborative and you can't ideate um, in, in these more spontaneous ways. And so I think there is a, a strong urge for people to be able to find that again. And that happens when you get to the office. So I think right now companies are trying to figure out what they need and, and how much they need and where they need it. And is there going to be a change to their workforce strategy as a result, as a result of the, the COVID impact? Or are they going to keep things substantially similar, but really wait for things to settle down so that they can then implement a, a, you know, a full go back to the office strategy, at which point you know, they'll, they'll reinvigorate. But a, a lot of the issues lie around what each company has had to face. Some have been hit from a balance sheet perspective and may not be able to spend on the real estate that they have. And so you may see subleases abound and we're already starting to see that obviously. Um, and others will look at it um, and say that there might be uh, changes that they need to implement in terms of how they actually configure space because their belief is that things are going to change long-term. And even when this subsides, we need to think about how we work a little bit differently, both physically, but then also strategically in terms of um, you know, how we actually get people to come into the office and when and what that interaction looks like in terms of the distances and what have you. Is, is, there, is, is there a time frame? Is there something that these tenants are waiting for? Is there, is there any like, key indicators that you know, are going, is really gonna push them into maybe making some more permanent decisions? Obviously, you know, lease expirations you know, force people to make decisions, mm -hmm. but you know, they, they mm -hmm. can always do you know, short-term extensions, which we're seeing a lot of. But are, are you getting, you know, are any, are any of these companies telling you that there's, there's something specific they're waiting to see happen before they really start going into down, down rabbit holes and really diving into, yeah. you know, what's the next next for their company? Every company wants to have more visibility into the future and how it relates to the pandemic and how it relates to going back to a more normal interaction. I do think that you have some businesses who are, you know, pressured by their financial position, and they may, they may be more likely to look at, you know, cost driving strategies to do something sooner. So that might, that might look like a uh, restructure of an existing lease. Maybe there is a, a space give back involved. Those companies have pressures to cut costs sooner and can find a way to rationalize it using 
existing footprints or perhaps you know modified footprints that don't require too much capital expenditure. That's a more immediate type of uh, transaction activity that you might see from companies in that position. I think others who have the time, who aren't forced by lease expiration, and who don't have the same balance sheet pressures, they are waiting. They're taking stock of their information gathering process, and they will find and frame up um, you know, a future office space requirement, whether or not it includes reusing what they have without spending uh, money to, to, to renovate or make big changes, but it could, it could result in a way in which they change their, their human resources strategy and who comes in when and are there labor arbitrage situations that they, they, can, they can take advantage of, perhaps where you have certain workers come and office in an existing location or perhaps a more, a more costly location and there are other locations that could serve as you know, a good function for other workers who may not need to be on a day-to-day -day basis as involved with some of the, the, the other workers in the office who have different functions. And we're, see, we're, we're learning about this with our clients at the same time and helping them figure out how they can do this in a way which um, helps their culture, helps their business, um, but really is also very sensitive to the pocketbook. And I think waiting puts everyone in a better position to have more information about their needs, but then also understand where the market's going. And so we're counseling our clients to, to wait unless they have an imminent issue that they have to solve for that requires action. So I'm gonna ask you a tough question and I don't, I don't know if, you, if there really is a good answer. Um, and it's maybe it's not even a great question, but um, because you folks only represent tenants and I feel like you have access mm -hmm. to a lot of diverse different, different types of tenants, I, I, mm -hmm. I, I'm really confused as to just, um, the the differences in how companies are approaching this, right? So um, you talk about real estate companies and, you know, some are all back in the office. Some are, hey, we're doing 20%. Some are saying we're doing 50%. Some say we're not going to come back until Labor Day. We have companies that are saying we're not coming back to January. Is, is there something that you see that's consistent amongst all the companies as to how they're coming with, you know, making those decisions? I, I, again, it, it seems like it's so all over the map. What, is there one thing that these companies are, are utilizing um, to help them make that decision? Or is it, again, I, is it politics? <laughs> I mean, I, wh why, why such, a, such a difference across, across the board? Matt, I think it comes down to comfort and uh, coming to an agreeable policy internally. And every company is going to be a little bit different. And so to the extent that people are not yet comfortable taking public trans transportation into the office or they're not comfortable being in the office, even if there are tremendous safety protocols at the building level and at the space level, it's very challenging to mandate in this environment that a worker comes to the office if they're not comfortable, because that then fits on culture. And, it, you know, you, you never want to put a worker in a position feeling compromised in terms of their safety. You won't be productive. You won't be creative. You won't feel like it's a, it's a good culture. And so at this point, every company has, a, a, I guess, a sort of a different lens on it. But generally speaking, uh, it's the, the focal point is flexibility. And if people do want to come in, they can to a certain extent. If there's a, a, you know, a well thought out program and many companies have done a really good job of thinking about how to do that and bring people in and rotations and, and find ways to do that where it makes sense for the different groups to interact. But at the end of the day, until we have a greater handle on where this is going and, and seeing light at the end of the tunnel, 
you will see variations of the theme. But flexibility and comfort, uh, mental comfort for physical health is going to drive what does this. So, you know, that, that brings me to, to another question I had is really, um, you know, and this may be a crystal ball and maybe your, your clients aren't, aren't, aren't alluding to, to, you know, what they do next is because there is the uncertainty, but there has been a flight to quality uh, in, in terms of, you know, what tenants have been doing over the last five years. You know, it, it seems to be, you know, best amenities, best buildings, you know, the, the you know, those things seem to be paramount. I feel like location flexibility may have given a little bit. Um, people willing to, you know, go find, you know, again, the building that they thought was, you know, best suited to help them, you know, attract and retain talent. Um, and so, you know, I think that's been part of the reason why we've, you know, we've seen so many buildings redeveloping. We've, we've seen rental rates increase, you know, dramatically. Um, tenants taking extra space. Tenants, you know, maybe paying for, you know, you know, really stretching in their budget to, to, to really try to, to be in a space that um, they really felt gave them an advantage to, to attract and talent. Do, do, do you see, or in your opinion, would you, would you see tenants still gravitating towards that type of work lifestyle? Or do you see tenants, again, especially those who, who have been hit, you know, hard in the pocket, but do you see them mm -hmm. placing more of an emphasis on value and, and location? I think the answer is both, and I think it depends on the time horizon. So if you look at where we are right now, the, the concept of, of buildings being able to talk about very significant health and wellness measures, whether it's in the systems infrastructure or protocols, you know, thinking of newer buildings, and those that are existing who might retrofit, those are clearly topical and, and the value that, that those, I, I will say systems amenities, they're, it's sort of a new amenity, health and wellness is, is what I would say is the new amenity now. Um, those, those will be here in my opinion to stay. That is, that is a, a key uh, driver and function of how, how productive your workforce can be. If you feel that you can bring a workforce into a building that's gonna support a healthy environment and people not being sick and feeling comfortable coming in, that's what you want. That, that will drive collaboration, that will drive a sense of culture and people wanting to be in the office. So that is true of, of any building. Uh, the newer buildings are, are gonna have an upper hand in terms of being able to include that and incorporate that into their, their current build. And so that becomes a day one offering. Um, in terms of the flight to quality, Yes, you have companies that are going to be challenged from a balance sheet perspective to justify moving to you know, a building that will demand the kind of rents that, that these new construction offerings are going to provide. And not to say that there's not a great deal of value, but not every tenant is going to be able to, to, to pay for that. And so you will find companies who will be looking for great values at the second generation building level. And the, the question will be which second generation building is gonna make the most sense and those buildings that I think quickly adopt new health and wellness measures if they're retrofitting exercises that need to be had, I think they'll be in a positive position, but cost is still going to be a big driver for many companies. Uh, so you do have, just like we have in the, in, in the marketplace pre-COVID, you've got businesses that want what they want and they'll pay for it because they see value and that would include new construction. And then you have others that aren't in that position or don't see the value quite as much. And therefore, will sub-markets they ultimately wouldn't have considered. 
if they place that as a high priority item. And so you might see some shifting, but generally, you know, there's still going to be price sensitivity. And I know you folks also represent tenants in the suburbs and downtown. Mm -hmm. Have you had any conversations with any tenants that are in the suburbs or, or vice versa or tenants, frankly, actually tenants that are downtown thinking about opening offices in, in the suburbs, maybe satellite offices, secondary markets. Have any of those conversations started to pick up um, as, you know, we, we, we look at the city, we look at the densities of the city, we look at public transportation, um, or are those the knee-jerk reactions that, you know, we've been discussing that people are really just, you know, putting on hold right now? We have had conversations with clients who have asked questions about the suburban marketplace, trying to get a gauge for, you know, buildings and locations specifically and, and, and price points. Uh, but we haven't had any clients actually pull the trigger and say, well, we're going to make that a, a core function of, of our office space strategy. Again, a lot of information is being collected now. I also think that the, a number of those companies who are thinking through it in, in a thorough way are looking at it and saying, we need to be careful that we don't overreact and end up having to spend on two events. So doing something in the short term as an overreaction and then as things settle and looking back and possibly being in a position where they didn't need to have made, you know, such a, a, you know, bold or expensive move depending on their decision. And so that's where the waiting comes in, is trying to avoid uh, making two larger decisions. So haven't seen anything yet. I wouldn't be surprised if you saw one or two um, as part of an overarching portfolio strategy, but, but none that, uh, that we've seen in any major way. And then, and final question, and you may not be able to answer this one either, um, but just as a building owner and, you know, thinking about building owners out there that may be listening mm -hmm. to this, you know, wondering, shit, you know, when, when, when's activity going to pick up? And, and I know you don't have a crystal ball and, and none of us know, but you do have a lot of contact with a lot of different tenants and eclectic mm -hmm. tenants at that. I mean, the, you know, we just got hit with a second wave. Obviously that, you know, that's going to slow things down. I literally had a deal yesterday guy. Um, 15,000 square foot new deal died literally because of the second wave. We, we got all the way through COVID. I was so surprised it got as, as far yeah. as it did, but the second wave right. really uh, gave them um, some serious anxiety about making the decision right now. So um, right. It, right. It, if, if you're a building owner and you're wondering, you know, how aggressive do I have to be for the deals that I do see? I mean, is any time frame that you think that you know activity may pick up, or is it really just it's all going to be about you know how this virus you know continues? I wish I did have a crystal ball. I mean, what I can say is that the more people go to the office and are in the office, and there is occupancy, and there aren't issues with that, you'll likely have more decision makers feeling like they have a little bit better handle on on space needs and people coming back to the office rather than still sort of staying away. And so that makes it a little easier for companies to think forward, but there's no imminent timeframe as to when this will really pick back up. I do, you know, no surprise, I'm sure, you know, this is, this is the obvious, but we need to have a little more visibility into when this subsides, whether it's through a vaccine or treatment or whether it, it, it subsides naturally. And until then, I think the activity will be It'll be happenstance. I don't think it will be thematic. If you think about sort of our, our, our business and sort of how we follow things on a quarterly basis, in the fall, there is a big conversation that's occurring right now, which is return to school. And so the question as to whether or not 
kids are going to go back to school and how that impacts people working from home, families and parents, and then a decision to maybe spend more time in the office versus staying at home, depending on childcare or not, that could be a catalyst for um, perhaps maybe a slight uptick in thinking about decisions around real estate because you have more people and more activity within the office. But I, I don't have a good handle on like what that type of volume would be or how active it'll be. Again, I still think it'll be sporadic and happenstance. We just we want to see more. We hope to see more because that'll be a sign that things are getting better and there's a greater confidence around coming out of this sooner. We will come out of this. It's just a question of when, don't know. And and that and that comes and that brings us to really kind of I've had I've ended a lot of these these conversations and I think one of the fun things about doing these podcasts is is really that I, what's the, the the sentiment from from most that have already been on is really they've they've found a real a great silver lining in everything that they've gone through over the last three four months and um, some have picked up new hobbies some have spent a lot more family time and you I know have picked up biking. Um, and, uh, I, I think, uh, there's a few people that I've talked to that have also picked up biking. Um, but you know, anything that, you know, you can close out this conversation with, um, to bring some positivity to, uh, to the situation. Absolutely. Uh, I, I think this has been, uh, unfortunately it was forced on us, but the, the silver lining from my perspective is that it's given us a really um, good moment in time to think about what it is that, that is really important to us. Uh, it's amazing to see how people are really helping each other and are concerned about each other. And um, more time is being spent with families. You really get to know your, your kids and your families, you know, much, much better in such a, in such a strange time in a way where you may not be able to ever have an experience like that again. And so, I think that that's been a really good thing, as well as really just understanding what it is that you love to do, because that that is what ends up coming out of this is you you spend time a little bit introspectively thinking about your career and what you love to do and and where your passions are. And so um, I think this is a really good time to be able to explore those and and be really honest with yourself. And so. For those of us who love what we do, it's a great time to reaffirm that. You know, the other thing coming out of this that I think is good for everyone is the way that we're, we're coming to work and we're making decisions about, you know, health and wellness functions in the office. This is great. I think this is a, this is a while we didn't ask for it, this is a really good thing for everyone. You know, you, you look at some disastrous events like 9-11 and now we have all these security measures and as much as they're very inconvenient, you know, you have a safer building. And so now we're taking it to the next level of safety with health and wellness. So if there is an upshot here and a silver lining is that going to the office and being around people is going to be, uh, you know, far less risky um, from a health perspective than it was. So that's a, that is a good thing. I love it. I love it. And uh, and I appreciate you, Robert. I, yeah, I appreciate your friendship. I appreciate you, you know, taking the time to come on here. Um, it's it's you know conversations like this that really helps us learn a lot too. And hopefully, you know, folks that are listening to us um, will get a lot of this as well. And um, really appreciate you joining us. And um, you know, good luck. Thank you for having me on. It's been great. Best of luck to you. And we hope that we'll be making uh, a lot of lease deals together in the not too distant future. <laughs>